Hey, welcome back to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. This episode, I was joined by Sean Parnell. Sean is a New York Times bestselling author of Outlaw Platoon, and he also has two fiction books. One is Man of War, released back in 2018, and one coming up next week, All Out War. So check out Sean's books. But hey, uh, Sean has another great story. He's an ex-Army Ranger infantry captain, uh, did a long tour in Afghanistan, 485 days, but Sean is also very passionate about veterans projects, you know, giving back to the veteran community. And he has his own 501 um, charity, American Warrior Initiative. Now, at the end of the conversation, we'll talk about that a little bit and uh, how they're giving back to the veteran community right now by getting service dogs. Because service dogs are super expensive. Everybody in the, everybody in the community knows that the dogs can be up towards of you know, multiple thousands of dollars, up to like twenty, thirty thousand dollars. So check out that. The website is AmericanWarriorInitiative.com. Now join us as we just chat about books and infantry life and just life in general. Thanks a lot. Hey, welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Picklow, and I have a very special guest today. Continuation. It seems like I have a ton of authors on lately. But I have a fellow infantryman, uh, 11 Alpha himself. Let's see if you guys can figure out what an 11 Alpha is, because I know you know what an 11 Bravo is. But this is Sean Parnell. How's it going, Sean? Hey, Jason. It's good to be here, man. And, and I, I don't get that many opportunities to chat with uh, a fellow infantry officer, so uh, it's a real honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem, brother. I appreciate it. Well, you were the bona fide infantry officer. I was just a leg uh, reserve guy. So, <laughs> that you know, a, you're ground pounders, man. That's how, that's how it is for ground pounders. And that, that's the thing about being a ground pounder. You know, we're not we're not special forces. We're not Navy SEALs, but we hold the line and we don't get any credit for it. So there's honor and there's elegance in that. Absolutely, brother. Now, and, you know, I, I was going through my pictures the other day and I found one of me, uh, with the blue cord, and I forgot how much of an awesome, awesome feeling that was to get that blue cord. You know what? It's so true, and you know the blue cord means so much. Uh, you know, in the army, for, you know, especially because that that's what signifies you being an infantryman. Um, it separates you from everybody else, and you know the same is true of the CIB. You know, um, you know infantrymen from generation after generation after generation. That that award is reserved for you know, infantrymen in combat with an enemy of the United States. So uh, the combat infantryman's badge, uh, the blue cord, uh, everything about being an infantryman and the heritage that comes with it, man. It's like you, you try to wrap your mind, you try to wrap your mind about the heritage that, you know, that we're a part of it, 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 in the infantry. It's like, man, we are really, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, man. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything about it when I was a kid, you know, you, you know, back then, for me, it was a little bit different because I, I grew up in the 80s and graduated in 91. And the only access I had to anything about the infantry was like the uh, the old long-range surveillance, the LERP guys and stuff like that and Hackworth and all these yeah. really cool, like just badass infantrymen. And then you're like, holy crap, you know, infantry is kind of where it's at. You know? Exactly. Uh, I mean, and the truth, the fact of the matter is, is – Every branch, every, it doesn't matter, you know, Army, uh, every branch within the Army, the Navy, the Marines, uh, whatever, they all support the infantry. They all support conventional infantry. Because um, the bottom line is, is that 
they deploy light infantry or mechanized infantry to places where they need boots on the ground to hold terrain. And that's what we do. We hold the line. We stand in the trenches. And once we have things secure, other units come in and, and do their thing. But the bottom line is, is that the infantry is and always has been the tip of the spear. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this because when I was a young captain in, uh, or a first lieutenant promotable in Afghanistan, I had the opportunity to uh, talk to my battalion commander about going special forces. And when I initially joined, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Green Beret. Um, but after leading troops in combat, after being in Afghanistan, with leading, having the opportunity to lead 40 men, I realized that the special, what's so special about the infantry, especially about being an officer, is having the opportunity to lead men. And, you know, you don't get that. You do to a lesser extent on a small special force team with eight people. But to be a company commander in the infantry means commanding 120 men. And then, and then you watch shows like Band of Brothers and watch how those men fought best on together and those groups of men and the, and the brotherhood and the bonds that they had. I just wanted to stay and continue to be a part of that, man. So, you know, the infantry always has a special place in my heart for that reason. You know, the bonds and the brotherhood. No, absolutely. I, I, I know that feeling exactly. The only reason I didn't go back active duty and uh, when I commissioned in 99, because, you know, at the time my wife commissioned as an MI officer and we were looking, you know, all in the family for you, man. It's so funny. Uh, it's funny. Cause we met, I was a, I was a young PV too. And she was an A4. It was funny, man. She thought I was an air force Academy officer. Little <laughs> did she know, man. But, uh, but I thought about doing the same thing. I wanted to, in 99, when I commissioned, I wanted to do SF. I wanted to go infantry ranger SF. Um, but we were looking at being away from each other for a year and a half. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to go into us border patrol. And I was like, yeah, you know what, let's do this. So, yeah, man, I understand that. Like, but once you get in there leading troops, and I read your book, Outlaw Platoon. So anybody listening right now, you really need to just kick back a, a bit before you go to Sean's fiction books, but read his book about his story in Afghanistan uh, with the 10th Mountain Division, where he led troops in combat. Uh, absolutely incredible book. I loved it. Um, but then, you know, that is kind of like it, you sh- it sees who you are and how you became what you are now, which is a fiction author, which is let's talk about that, brother. And not to yeah, transition sure. out of the amateur. I could talk <laughs> infantry stories all day long. <laughs> sure, we'll have to do sure. that another time. But how do you transition? I mean, obviously, you got back. You must have had the literary bug stuck in your head when you got back from the war. So you, you put your you put your story down on paper. But how do you transition from a nonfiction world to all of a sudden, Hey, you know, I'm not going to write a fiction book. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's really challenging because it's like nonfiction in, in many ways, you know, you're, I, I was, at least for me, was writing about my experience and my experience of the war was in my head. And so the book outlaw platoon is based on my experience. So in many ways, it's just like putting those thoughts on the paper and making sure through interviews with my men who were there with me, that it was accurate. Right. But fiction is an entirely different thing. And so to answer your question directly, how do you make the transfer from nonfiction to fiction? It's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, because the style, the style of writing is completely different. You know, you have to learn how to tell a story. You have to build a world. You have to develop characters with, you know, internal conflicts, right? Internal psychological conflicts and external conflicts in the real world that they have to overcome. You have to develop a protagonist that's likable. And so 
you know, for me, uh, the ultimate reason for, for making this transition was, you know, ultimately I wrote Outlaw Platoon to capture the legacy of my men to make sure that Americans would remember and recognize the heroism that I witnessed on the battlefield of my men for generations to come. And what I realized is that even, even after Outlaw Platoon was published, most Americans still have no idea what it means to be an American warrior, regardless of branch, right? Or you know, even, even a first responder, where you put a uniform on, you defend this country in some way, shape, or form. Most Americans have no idea what it means to do that. And so you know, part of the catalyst and the reason for me jumping to fiction was to develop an, a character, that, a mainstream fictional character that embodied those characteristics that you see in, in, in our, our veterans and our military and our first responders. It's honor, integrity, service to something greater than oneself, sacrifice, duty, um, loyalty, all of those things uh, in a mainstream fictional character. It's just really, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't been done. I think the genre needs it, but that really that was, that was what drove me to, to try to start learning the craft of writing fiction. Well, then you're also bringing on, like, you know, we talked about what it's like, you know, to lead troops now and, and how a lot of those young troops became under your command is because one day somewhere in their past, a seed was planted for them to become a warrior. And if you write these fiction books, I don't know about you, but like when I was a kid, I, I ate up as many books as I could, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, about cool ass military stories. And if you write a kick-ass story with a kick-ass protagonist, that might plant a seed for the next generation. So in a There's way, you're no question. No, yeah. Jason, you're like you are hitting the nail on the head. That's it. That's exactly right. You know, like I, I love Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones. I grew up watching him punch Nazis in the face, right? I mean, part, <laughs> yeah. of, part of I mean, there's no question. It would be foolish to assume that that did not impact me as a kid. So the bottom line is is that if kids, if young people, if, if, if young people are reading these books and being inspired by fictional protagonists, it, it can ultimately spark something inside them to, to want to emulate those characteristics that they see. And so I feel like, I feel like the country is in a place, and I felt for a long time, the country is in a place where they don't really understand, you know, what drives someone to serve this country. Well, and I you, think, well, yeah, you, you hit, you're hitting it now, man. Your people are forgetting the warrior ethos. You know, right. growing yeah. up, you know, and I'm going to keep bringing it back to the, the childhood, man. The childhood is where warriors are started and they're made. And, you know, the playing the war in the background, the backyard, the reading the books, the watching the movies. You need that. Uh, no offense, but you need that stuff in order to understand, hey, you know what? That might be kind of a cool career. Maybe I'll look into it more and get a real outlook of what it's like. Yeah, no question about it. And I think that that there's also value in young people understanding the difference in good versus evil. I think in, in our, in our culture today, you know, we're so steeped in moral relativism, meaning like, you know, for people that are listening, it's like, well, you know, like in, in Afghanistan, it's okay to abuse children. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, you see, uh, I, I saw, I personally witnessed children being abused in Afghanistan on a scale that would horrify the average American. Um, moral relativists would say today, well, that's just their culture. That's how they are. And I would say, I would say, no, that, that that's evil. That's wrong. You know, exploiting and abusing children is wrong, regardless of where you're from and regardless of the culture that shaped you. It's, it's wrong and it's terrible. Um, and so I think our culture is steeped in moral relativism. And I think that's a danger to our children because I think that kids need to be able to identify good versus evil. And so my hope is that some, in some way, shape or form, like not only will, 
will kids learn, you know, you know, values inherent to the warrior ethos that American warriors emulate on the battlefield every day. But it also, my also, my other hope is that they'll be able to identify clearly uh, and clearly differentiate between what's good and what's evil. And I think that's critically important for generations moving forward in this country. Well, you also want to tell a really good story on top of that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's is, exactly yeah. right. And, you know, if you can portray, you know, uh, good versus evil in a realistic light, and that's what I love about talking with uh, veteran or LEO authors is because you're, you're transforming, just like you said, you saw evil in Afghanistan, regardless if, if that's culturally significant or not to that culture, but you saw evil. And you're transforming or transferring what you saw in reality to paper. And people yeah. could tell that. So when you're, and that's what I, I absolutely love reading books like that, because if the author knows what he's talking about, it, you, it, you could tell right off the bat. Yeah, I think I think authenticity with books like this is really important. You know, now uh, what I do is I take what I experienced in the battlefield and try to try to put put those things in a book, like you said, make it as authentic as humanly possible, give people a sense of what it means to be in the heat of battle or in a gunfight. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, the, the story, right? It, the story is king. Characters are king, and so. Yeah, I want to. I want to make sure that we have like positive examples for our child and stuff, and clearly differentiate between good and evil. All that is part of, you know, what I think is a kick-ass story. That you know, it's it's you know, it's fast moving. And you pick it up and put it down. You probably read this book in two or three days. And and my hope is that people put it back, put it down, and be like, well, that was a damn good book with a lot of action, you know. Um, and so yeah, I mean, you want entertainment. And escapism uh, in our country today, and giving people the opportunity to like, you know, experience those values that we just talked about uh, while enjoying a damn good story, I think is really important. I think it's really cool and really fun, and it's desperately needed because in our culture today, it's like you can't even turn on late night TV without being like, you know, without having a political perspective crammed down your throat. Uh, so, you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Hence the Protectors podcast. We can get away from politics for like you know just twenty five, thirty five minutes, man. Yeah, there you go. You know exactly, it's exactly. Just, and that's why you know, and that's the thing, you know, not that jump topics or anything, but books, podcasts. People are looking for another outlet that oh are my just gosh. so of we course. could enjoy totally entertainment, agree. man. Yeah, entertainment has been you know this. I mean, God, we could talk for hours about this stuff. But you're absolutely right. Uh, with your assessment uh, and analysis on podcasts in, in books and other avenues of approach with regards to how we consume entertainment news, right? Entertainment and news. And mm -hmm. so, you know, oh my gosh, you know, people just want to be able to sit down and read a book and not have a political view crammed down their throat, you know? Um, and so, you know, getting back and, you know, writing nonfiction and then making the transition to fiction First with Man of War and then All Out War, which has just been. Well, let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. So you start, you do Man of War, yeah. and you're like, "Damn, this is successful." Um, were you when you were halfway through a Man of War, were you like, "Man, I got to write another book"? Or were you like, "Oh man, this is the worst thing ever"? Obviously, you wrote another book and you're on to your third. But what was that like, like halfway through writing Man of War? Were you like oh looking forward? Yeah, it was so challenging. I, I mean, that first book was every book is challenging in a, in its own way, but writing fiction and writing and crafting a story, I mean, it's an art form. And I mean, Man of War, 
what's in print right now is like the fourth or fifth iteration of that story where I had to start from scratch because it just was not right. And, and that was, I mean, that speaks to how difficult the writing process is, the crafting of a story. It's all so challenging. And I think it's a, um, I mean, it's a form of art at the end of the day, you know? And so Absolutely. I remember thinking halfway through man of war, I mean, Oh my God, I, I couldn't, I remember thinking I couldn't, couldn't figure out how it was actually going to finish. You know, I, I really didn't know. I really didn't know <laughs> or see light at the end of the tunnel. And it just was about like, it just became about like working my ass off, uh, trying to make sure that it was finished and crossing the finish line. And then once it, once, once I was done with the book and put it out and it was met with moderate success, it was like, okay, now it's time to do another one, you know, and build on this world. So the second book was challenging too, you know, all out wars, you know, my goal all along has been to sort of make each book a little bit more mainstream and all out war is that, but man, it's just each book, <laughs> you know, you're met with unique challenges and, and it's, man, now, it's, it's what you, are, you, times. are you using Scrivener or are you using Word? Am I, uh, for, for writing, am I using, I'm, I'm using Microsoft Word, yeah. Oh my gosh, have you heard of Scrivener yet? No, I haven't, I don't even know uh, what it is. <laughs> my gosh, it's Scrivener, isn't that, and this is, okay, we're going to transition to this story from awesome Sean doing awesome, cool writing stuff to, if you're a veteran, you're an LEO and you want to write a book, check out a program called Scrivener. I don't get paid by them, I use it for writing my books, but Scrivener, what it is, it's, um, it's a program where you could map out your whole story um, and you could shuffle it around. You could, it's almost like you'd have uh, virtual index cards. You can use a cross platform. So if I want to write something on my phone, I could then transfer it to my computer, um, to my iPad. And it breaks the, it breaks your whole book down by chapters, whether it's a fiction book, nonfiction book, a manuscript, a screenplay or whatever. You can even add, um, if you're doing research, you could add the clips in there. You could add links. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, brother. I will, I will have a link to Scrivener again at the end of this podcast because I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Well, I mean, that, I think that sounds, yeah, I definitely want to give it a, give it a try, uh, have a look, learn more. I mean, that's, that's essentially like when you talk about breaking a story down, it's like storyboarding, you know, like where I yep, have exactly, to. Man. You know, storyboard out a whole story. What I do is I, I build out each book around five action sequences and I write to those sequences, right? You know, and so, um, you know, that if, if this software can help do that in an efficient way, I mean, man, I might just be using it from now on. We'll see. Yeah, it's it's, it's crazy, man. I, you know, the the past couple of authors I talked to, we were, we were, they just started using it. And I think it was either Jocko or Joe Rogan uh, just started using it too. Uh, it's oh, that's crazy, cool. man. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna check it out for sure. I'm gonna check it out. Now I haven't talked to Jack or Joe Rogan, but if I do, you know, hey, that sucks. For everyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, but Sean, let's. How do you, you know, you got out of the army. Um, you were medically retired. You were injured. Um, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Bronze Star of Valor. Now, how, how did you make that transition? Was that tough? How did you deal with that? I mean, obviously it was tough, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I, I I was medically retired. I was put out of the military. Uh, my intention when I joined was to make it a career, you know. And, and I was put out. And when I first got out, I wanted to go back to school, get my PhD in clinical psychology, and help help men and women come home from war. Um, 
while I was in grad school, I ended up writing uh, my first book, Out Love Tune, and I faced a decision whether to stick it out, and, you know, six, seven more years in school, like struggling on $1,500 a month to get a PhD, yeah. or I could try to put everything I had behind making sure Out Love Tune was successful. And I remember thinking it was, it was a really difficult decision for me, you know, to, to, I, I ended up leaving grad school. Uh, to promote Outlaw Platoon. At the time, it was a really difficult decision. I pained over it every day that, looking back, it was the best decision I ever made in terms of uh, honoring the legacy of my troops, you know, and getting that story out there. And, you know, even even just from a platform perspective, like the Outlaw Platoon and its success gave me a platform to do even more for our nation's heroes, you know, and it gave me a platform to write more books. And so, you know, it was hard. Uh, transitioning out of the military is hard, uh, but I think I came out and had a clear-cut goal in mind. And I think the core of that goal, Jason, was, you know, it always was, whether it was trying to make a decision to leave grad school or stay in grad school, the core of each one of those uh, courses of action for me were, was serving something greater than myself. Had I stayed in grad school, it would have been, you know, helping people in therapy, helping men and women in therapy deal with combat trauma. Uh, or whether it was promoting outlaw platoon, it was like making sure the legacy of my men uh, was was captured and remembered and uh, passed down over the generations, you know. Um, and I think, you know, for anybody who's transitioning from the military, you know, that that is so important, uh, being able to say, OK, you know, I'm closing one phase of my life where service to something greater than myself was the core component of that. Whatever the next step for me is that also, you know, that, you know, service to other, to other men and women, uh, putting others before yourself always has to be the core of, of any professional goal, I think, for military people getting out of the military. So um, I think that helped make the transition easier for me. And, you know, I, I sometimes think that I, I always, I almost feel like the podcast is like a therapy session because I always get something out of it. And, and you just said something right there to kind of keys on, Every one of my guests, I think uh, you were 42, 43, um, every one of them has that call to service after or during their, you know, because this is the Protectors podcast. Everybody has something to do with you yeah. know, the military LEO. But the, everybody seems to have that same call to service regardless of what their status is now. They always want to give back to society. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. through the troops they serve with or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think I, I would, I would say, I would say the ones that are, are successful, uh, even, mo- even, even moderately successful getting out typically focused on that. I feel like most, you know, I've, I've got a charity and, and uh, a lot of what we do is, is help lift up veterans and first responders now. Uh, and we give service dogs back to them and stuff. And it's, it's really rewarding and amazing, but oftentimes uh, veterans and first responders who are stuck uh, transitioning often haven't it's not that they haven't it's not that they're not putting others first right it's not that it's just that they, they perhaps don't recognize or 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 uh, recognize the well I'm, I'm articulating myself poorly it's no I, know, I, think, I, I think I think what they need to do in order to make their transition more successful have a mission that's that uh, continues to allow them to serve something greater than themselves. You know, it's, it's real, it's really, really easy to come home um, and get out. And believe me, I know because I was there um, to be, to be isolated, man. You know, when only well, yeah, that's, this country that's, serves, that's, man, yeah. not a whole lot of people understand what you've been through, you know? Well, I think, and you know what, I, I think one thing I, I could tell is that 
you know, not when you're giving back and when you're volunteering, when you're doing this, when you're doing that, you're also building a brotherhood, sisterhood. So you're getting back what you, what you lost in the military. So you're able to take that next step. I think that's one of the other things uh, I've been seeing a lot of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, but when you're, when you're in the military and you're serving, you know, you've got a man or woman on your right and your left. That's the essence of service in the military too, is mm-hmm. making, making sure that you take care of your brother or your sister on the front lines with you, you know? And so I think it's critically important for people when they come back to continue to have that mentality. And it does, even if it's not about having a, mil- a charity that serves our military or first no. responders, it's looking for ways to give back and put others before yourself mm-hmm. is really, I mean, it's important for everybody, right? But it's especially important for people that are uh, transitioning from the military or law enforcement to continue to find ways to do that. Well, it's essentially therapeutic as well, you know, because you're, you're continuing the mission. Yeah, and yeah, no doubt about it. That's it. You hit the nail on the head, continuing the mission. Say, hey, you know what? Um, I know you don't have that much time, and you mentioned your charity. I typically end the conversation uh, with something that you support, uh, and that's one thing that I like to talk about is you have a charity. Yeah. Yep. It's called uh, – my charity is called the American Warrior Initiative, and you know the whole, the whole point of it is to educate civilians on what it means to serve and inspire them to give back to our military and law enforcement in and, and creative and fun ways. And so – you know, we partnered with an organization like a mortgage company that helps offset our overhead and our finances, which allows us to take 100% of our donations and give them to the causes. Uh, Fairway Mortgage like took us under their wing like, you know, back in 2012 after Outlaw Platoon came out, and they've been supporting us ever since. And so now what we do, you know, we've been doing this for six years, and every year it's more rewarding than the last, you know. But now we've started focusing heavily on getting – service dogs into the hands of our of our veterans and first responders you know it's like you know all about this jason i'm sure but it's like they're unbelievably expensive service dogs are or animals are unbelievably expensive the wait lists are long when veterans find themselves at the top of these wait lists oftentimes they can't afford the dog anyway so what we do is we we come in and we pay for it we get the dogs in the hands of veterans that's great man yeah it's cool it's been really rewarding and you know, service dogs and service animals, they could, they save lives. And so it's no, absolutely. awesome to be a part of that stuff. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, I wish we had more time, but, you know, hey. Hey, we'll do it again, right? It. We'll do it we again. Will. We'll do it again, I always, Jason. We're, I'm starting to do the part twos with a lot of people, man, because, you know, I'm almost wondering if I should do what Ritlin or a Jocko and going for like 50 minutes to an hour, three hours, five hours. But, Sean, thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's 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 been an honor to be here. Thank you. Thanks, brother.